We are back. Welcome to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and diving straight into the show's den, I'm thrilled to be joined by Ryan Sandler, founder and CEO at TrueWork, the company that gives employees control over employment, income, and other identity data. To date, Ryan has raised over $44 million with TrueWork from the likes of Sequoia, Kosler, Menlo, and then also from the founders of companies such as Plaid, SeatGeek, Mino Games, and Checker, to name a few. And also prior to founding TrueWork, Ryan spent three years as a senior product manager at LinkedIn. But before we dive into the show today, let me state the obvious. Video consumption has skyrocketed over the last six months, and more than ever, developers need to be able to quickly build rock-solid video into their applications, and Mux is an API-first platform that makes building online video experiences easy. What Stripe does for payments, Mux does for video. Mux handles storage, encoding, and delivery, so your development team can focus on building product. Live streaming is just as easy, and Mux will scale with you as you grow, whether you're serving a few dozen streams or a few million. Designed by video experts and trusted by companies like SoulCycle, Robinhood, Visco, and Hopin, to name a few, your video will work perfectly on every device every time. Sign up for a free account and get $20 credit at mux.com. And every great product needs great marketing, and you have to check out the book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. It's a wake-up call for modern marketers and sellers. It's a guide to ditching traditional strategies that are no longer working and focusing on customer experience to drive revenue growth. This book is more than lofty theoretical ideas. It delivers proven B2B strategies, tactics, and plans that are ready to be adapted, customized, and tested by marketing and sales leaders. It provides a step-by-step guide to move your revenue teams away from an MQL-focused approach and align them around an ABM model that fundamentally puts prospects first. Check out more at sixcents.com forward slash Sasta. That's six, the number, sense.com forward slash Sasta. And last but by no means least, there is always competition. And Ahrefs makes competitive analysis easy. Their tools show you how how your competitors are getting traffic from Google and why. You can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic, find out the exact keywords they're ranking for and which backlinks are helping them most. From there, you can replicate or improve on their strategies. If you're not getting significant search traffic, Ahrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on. You can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you are getting search traffic, use features like their top pages report to break down which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate their success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs.com to sign up. That's ahrefs.com to sign up. That's enough of these dreary British tones, though, so now I'm very excited to welcome Ryan Sandler, founder and CEO at TrueWork. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ryan, it is so great to have you on the show today. I've heard so many good things from Delian, from Alex, from Keith, from Alfred. The list goes on. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on. Not at all, but context is always king. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS? And how did you come to found True Work most recently? So I always wanted to start a company. I started one in college, failed, and decided I'm going to go to LinkedIn and learn how to build real products. And so I went to LinkedIn, built a product called LinkedIn Salary, a competitor to Glassdoor. And then I left in 2017 to start True Work. I actually left without the exact idea that I wanted to start. I knew I wanted to start something in consumer utility or SaaS, something people wanted to pay for. And something that also uses large sets of data. I was doing a lot of data science at LinkedIn. And I discovered the world of income verification, mostly by talking to customers, people in HR, at banks, and realized how large of a market this is. And more importantly, I became really passionate about the lack of privacy in the market in general. Essentially, every time you apply to a loan, an apartment, get a new job, a ton of sensitive information about you is being shared to a bunch of third parties. Your income, your employment, your assets, your credit, 
credit, your address history. And you don't know if that information is accurate, where it's going. And starting with income and employment, TrueWork is putting that data behind consumers' consent, giving consumers control, transparency into that data, and they have to give consent before it's released to third parties. And we're doing this by building a three-sided network between banks, what we call verifiers, the employers, and the employee or the applicant who's actually applying to the transaction. And so we're really a B2B C company where we sell a SaaS product to employers and to banks, which builds this network. Totally get you. And it's quite shocking just how available the data is and the levels of data that they provide to the third parties. So yeah, I mean, it's just astounding for me. And I think not many people realize quite the levels. But I do want to ask, you mentioned that the first company. I'm always like struck. I'm sorry for going off schedule, but hey, fuck it. Schedules are made to be broken. You said about it actually not working out. And I'm always questioning, like, do we learn more from success or failure? And I'm intrigued. What did you learn from that company not working? Yeah, you know, I was studying computer science and I knew how to build a website but I didn't know how to build a website that people wanted. I think when you're in college, you build things that you might want. You don't really know what the market wants and also how big of a market that is. And that's what I think was really missing and where you really can gain a lot by going to a great company and learning from the best. Okay, so on that note, you went to LinkedIn, you spent three years there. What were the takeaways for you from that experience? And I guess, how did it impact how you think about running true work today? You know, I really learned a lot, really a lot of foundational. And I think four major things that I learned and I keep with me today. A, I mentioned before, but I learned how to build products and grow products that people actually want. How do you do research and understand truly if a user is going to use something before you go and start building it? And then number two, how do you evaluate whether something is big enough? At LinkedIn, we always are only looking at products that can get to 100 million or a billion in revenue. And it really grows your lens of, is this a big enough idea for me to go start a company or a product around? Third, it was how to actually go to market, how to do sales, marketing, and bring a product to life. And then the fourth and final, I would say, is how to be a great leader. Really learned a lot from folks like Jeff Wiener on how to practice compassion and management and really has taken with me in my day-to-day at work. I'm too intrigued on that leadership element. How do you think about being the compassionate leader today that modern workforces require? Yeah, you know, I think to be a great manager, you're going to have to deliver honest and sometimes negative feedback, but doing it in a really compassionate way and doing it in a way that still gains respect from your team is really an art and science. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's a combination and a lot of art as well. I'm interested, you said there about the B2B2C component of the business, and that obviously means that you've got to start really with a more enterprise heavy sale. And I guess we're in the midst of the rise of bottoms up and everyone having credit cards and access to purchasing power. And so if we think about scaling from zero to enterprise sales, how do you think about moving up market in a really methodical way? Yeah, you know, we always wanted to be a company that services both enterprises and SMEs. We think the biggest companies are built are able to service both. But where do you start is always a hard problem. And many startups will find that it's really hard to just start in enterprise. And so you have to create a wedge somewhere. Now, every company is different. But for us, the pain point increases greatly by the size of the company. And so we decided to start with mid-market on the HR side. And I think it's something that people often overlook. People often want to go start at the smallest of SMBs and work their way up. But what a really small 10-person company, 50-person company, what they want is very different than an enterprise. What a mid-market company wants, a company with 500, 2,000 employees, is much more similar to what an enterprise wants. And the sales cycle is much faster. There may be less security requirements. You can actually close these quite large companies in the early days of your company. And so I always suggest to people is take a look at your customer base, of course, and your product. But if there's demand in the mid-market and you think you can go and acquire customers, start there and then work your way up to the enterprise. Can I ask, when you're starting out and you know, you're know you a very small, maybe single digits in terms of employee number company, what does it take to give them security that you're a trusted vendor and that you'll be with them for the long run and that they can really kind of count on you as a startup? And that's the hardest part. I mean, I remember first three months of the startup when we lost to the incumbent at a large public tech company was a potential customer. And it was really devastating. You're like, how did we possibly lose to this really old crummy company? But it's because you don't have those security requirements yet. You don't have the brand. And it's just a reality. You can't get bummed out about it. You have to go acquire your initial set of customers first before
before you go to those public tech companies. And for us, some of the first customers are going to take a bet on you. You build a really strong relationship with them, get them really bought into the vision, and they're willing to take a bit of a leap. Know that you don't have your security certs yet, but you have a really great security team and a great infrastructure that they're willing to take a bet and go with you and build your initial customer base. But it is absolutely one of the most challenging things. And it's really building great relationships with those early customers that matters the most. Speaking of them taking a bet on you, can I ask, in terms of that sales process, how much of converting that sale is selling them on the vision, what you will be, what you will be able to provide to them, how the relationship will develop versus what we fundamentally have today as a product lineup? It's a bit of both. You can't only sell a vision. The product has to add value today, but it's in more of the extended functionalities. Some of the features that are missing is where you really sell the future, knowing that this is a really simple product today, but it still works. It still adds value. So I will say it's a bit of both. Can I ask, where do you think, you mentioned some of the core elements that often are hurdles for startups selling into mid-market and enterprise. Where do you think, and you're in the center of this, where do you think many other founders go wrong who start in selling to mid-market and enterprise? Let's just say starting with enterprise can almost always just go really poorly because it takes time to get to your security certifications and other foundations that you need to go to enterprise. But generally, like even in the mid-market, I think some shortfalls people will find is they don't understand how procurement is done at that company. They really need to do more discovery and understand the legal security, the procurement process, who the decision makers are, who all the influencers are on the deal. And it could just be quite challenging if you've never done it before. Can I ask, in terms of the product itself, product has to change for different segments of market. And so from a product perspective, what have been some of your biggest observations of like how product requirements change when scaling or selling into enterprise and mid-market rather than the much smaller SMEs? Yeah. So an enterprise in particular, you know, you see a standard list of products and features that enterprises in many different industries want. And what's been fascinating to us, we sell to both enterprise HR departments and enterprise banks. And these features are very similar. They want SSO sign-on, role-based access control, audit logs, detailed reporting and analytics, change management. Sometimes they want you to expose a whole API just for them so they can do a lot of customization on their end. And so what is good is that a lot of these features are pretty consistent amongst all enterprises. Totally get you in terms of kind of the consistency. A challenge, and again, sorry for going off schedule, but change management is really tough, especially when they've got such ingrained systems. How do you think about change management, onboarding, and just ensuring a really effective transition? Yeah, selling a product that is an add-on or goes together with their existing tooling today is much, much easier than selling a rip and replace solution. And then you hear that, of course, in many products, but that is one suggestion is I push founders to think, how can my product live with the tools that this company already uses rather than doing a much, much longer change management of ripping out and replacing? And what you'll find is over time, if the customer is getting a ton of value from you, they will end up ripping and replacing their other tool. But the procurement process is much, much faster if it's an add-on. Do you not worry from a budgetary perspective? Because I always worry that if you're adding a new line on the budget, it's a much harder sell. They've got to find that budget from elsewhere. Do you worry that if you're an add-on to the existing infrastructure, it's fundamentally adding a line on the budget, which just places a more onerous kind of elements on the sales side? It's a great point. It depends what type of product you're selling. For us, even when it's an add-on, it's reducing labor costs internally. And so it's still additive and has good ROI, even if it's an add-on. But I absolutely understand your point that you might have to struggle a bit to find that budget if it's an add-on, and you might have to reduce price a little bit when it's not a full rip and replace. Yeah, no, I do get you there. Can I ask, in terms of like finding that budget, pricing is just such a bear to get your arms around, especially in the early days. I mean, it never gets easier, I don't think, bluntly. But especially when you're like looking at it going, how do I make this work? And how do I not disincentivize usage the more that they use it? So like, how do you think and how did you approach pricing? And what have been some things that worked for you? Yeah, the first thing is start as high as you can. You hear that and it's easier said than done, but really is so important. And I see so many people underpricing their product. And it can be hard, right? Especially when you're in the beginning and you don't have a lot of brand and you're coming up with a really high price. People can look at you like you're crazy. But at the same time, I've never lost a deal because I quoted 200 price. 
they'll tell you that's out of budget. You have the opportunity to negotiate lower. And so there's really not a lot of downside by starting really high. That's the first thing I'll say. Do you not worry yeah. that you'll burn a lead by suggesting way too high a price? So say you suggest like 3x more than you normally would. And they're like, whoa, 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 Ryan, way too much. Sorry, this isn't a solution for us. Do you worry that you'll burn a lead by going too high? And has that ever happened? It depends where you are in the sales cycle. We try to have those conversations at least after the first or second call so that we already have established a relationship and they see the value of the product outside of just pricing. Really try to leave pricing towards the end or the last elements. And again, it depends on the market. But what we find, especially when we're selling to our banking customers, is pricing can be more secondary. There's just other value that they're much more trying to get out of the product, like speed, support, SLAs, that pricing can be a bit secondary. And so I think saving it for a little bit later in the sales conversation so that it doesn't burn the lead is important. And you already have a relationship with them that you're able to save the conversation if they do react really negatively to it. I totally agree. I think one thing that helps people get over the line on pricing is also kind of case studies and seeing social validity from people around them in their market engaging. How have you guys approached case studies? And what are your thoughts and advice to other founders around them? Yeah, case studies, webinars, any way that you can have your customers speaking for you is incredibly powerful. And we utilize them quite frequently and try to get as many case studies as we can from customers. There's definitely never too many that you can have. And in addition to case studies, like you just want those customers to be references as well, especially in enterprises. They might want to talk to other large enterprises you have on the platform in addition to the case study that you have. And so just keeping such a good rapport with those companies, especially early customers, is so important. Totally with you. Can I ask the final thing on kind of like sure. change as you sell into kind of enterprise and mid-market? And it's like structure of the sales team. What does that look like for you today? And how has it changed over time? Yeah, you, our sales team is still super small. We're an 80-person company and have 10 salespeople. And that's grown from about five last year. We've always had the team really lean and try to have a lot of capacity per person and be a really lean team. We've started building out, you can imagine, more enterprise reps as you go more up market like we're doing in 2020. And it's not only hiring reps on the enterprise side, but account managers, customer success, the support that comes around it is just as important as your account executives. In terms of the reps, when you're selling to SMEs, it's quite easy to tell in terms of payback periods, who's effective and who's not, and really kind of determine the quality from the not such high quality reps. It's so much harder in enterprise and mid-market where the sales cycles are just much longer. How do you think about kind of sales rep productivity given the sales cycles being longer? It's hard and we're definitely still learning. It just takes more time to see that productivity. You can look at inputs along the way. You can look at pipeline generation. You can look at the speed that it's moving between stages. But you're right in that you're not going to see that full sales cycle until maybe six months later because it just takes so much longer. But everyone is very aware of that and you plan your year with that in mind. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the planning is really important. In terms of kind of filling the funnel for the sales reps to go after though, you said before to me that SEO remains one of the best kept secrets of the SaaS industry. So I love that, but you left me on a cliffhanger there. Why do you think it's so underrated? So I can talk about SEO all day and I'm really glad you asked. <laughs> Organic growth from SEO, it's completely free. It's compounding and it creates incredible barriers to entry. Trying to compete with someone that has massive and comprehensive SEO rank is very, very challenging. And I know because I did it at LinkedIn when we were competing against companies like Indeed and Glassdoor who are really, really good at it. And so speaking of that barrier to entry, I'm only really willing to talk about our strategy now, given that we're three years in and frankly, we have quite a lot of barriers to entry because I think it can really be helpful to other entrepreneurs who may be overlooking SEO today. What does this strategy look like then? I'm really intrigued. Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at SEO strategy, you may be familiar, there are head terms and tail terms. So for say a G2 review site, a head term might be software reviews and a tail term might be Salesforce reviews or Slack reviews, right? They're putting the company name plus reviews and we call those tail terms. And so when you start a company, you realize like the head terms will take time to rank. You know, there's a lot of people ranking for software reviews, but the tail terms, which there might be thousands or tens of thousands of is where the real meat is and where a lot of people overlook. And so for us to give some detail, our head term is employment verification, you can imagine. And our tail term
terms are things like Facebook employment verification, DoorDash employment verification, when someone searches a specific company plus employment verification. And you can imagine that we spun up tens of thousands of pages that rank now number one for every single company plus employment verification that you search for. And we actually got this ranking quite quickly because what we realized was that there's a lot of people searching these terms, a lot of loan processors around the country, but nobody was ranking. And incumbents didn't really know what SEO was. And so within the first few months, we started ranking number one and getting hundreds of thousands of MAUs, which is quite a lot for a SaaS company. Oh, it's insane for a SaaS company, but can I ask, do you then just have to build a content engine? I mean, what does that content team look like to spin up so many pages so fast to rank as well as you have done? And I appreciate you asking because I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. We don't even have a content. This was all automated. And so you can imagine there's ways you can pull content from around the web, but also content provider of users on how to fill these pages. And that's the key part of SEO that so many people get wrong, right? It's not just throwing up a bunch of content, a bunch of landing pages. It's creating a whole product strategy that's predicated on SEO. And so when you look at how we build our product, it was really with SEO in mind rather than building a product and then trying to send traffic to it, if that makes sense. Well, actually, can you go into that? What's the difference between the two and what does that look like in reality? Yeah. So with the assumption that SEO will be a large funnel for you, essentially a lot of our product strategy was how do we scale and build a directory and tens of thousands of pages in a way that gets users in the first time using it again, but really how they come in is through SEO and only SEO. And so for us or a G2, as I mentioned, or a Yelp or LinkedIn or Glassdoor, I mean, you'll see tons of examples of this, that the whole website design information architecture really is centered around SEO rather than it being secondary, if that makes sense. It totally does. No, it absolutely does. Can I ask, when so much of it is predicated around SEO and you have leads coming in through SEO, which is a little bit different to maybe more classical ABM if you're looking at enterprise leads, how does that change the qualification and SDR process when kind of thinking about filtering from marketing to sales? The good thing about people with SEO is that they have really high intent. Depends on the company, but for us, our funnel, you can imagine for banks is that they might come in through SEO, use the product in a self-service way, and then become an enterprise user. And so it's thinking about what is the funnel once someone comes in through SEO and what is the pathway for them to sign up for an enterprise account or get their managers or executives at their company to sign up for an enterprise account. And so we have basically a lot of automation and filtering that we do to qualify people based on their intent of using the website, how they came in, and a bunch of other factors. But what it does is having such a large universe of leads and comprehensive understanding of the market, it just gives you such a good prioritization of who to go after. How does it change the structure of your marketing team? Is it like an ancillary, not an ancillary, obviously it's a core channel for you, but like, is it one of the dominant channels? Is it like the dominant channel? How do you think about where it sits in your lead gen marketing stack and how the marketing team engages? Yeah, it definitely is our greatest channel by far. And historically, it, it was built within the product and engineering team. We hired marketing recently in the past year or so, and they're doing a ton of work on SEO as well. But you can imagine some of the more product-driven elements of it are living with an engineering product. Totally. No, I do see that. Absolutely. I do want to move that into my favorite rhyme, which is it's a quick fire round. So I say a short statement, and then you give me your immediate thoughts. It's 60 seconds or less per one. Are you ready to rock and roll? Sure. So tell me, startups are never easy. What's the biggest challenge today with your role with Drew work? Prioritization, always. So many things to do. How do we choose what to do? You said about hiring marketing for the first time within the last year. What's the hardest role to hire for today, do you think? VP of sales. Finding the right person for your exact type of business and your segments, your audiences is really challenging. What angel investor has been most impactful to you and true work? I have a mentor named Eduardo Vivas, who has been incredibly impactful and just a really great ear for me to talk to outside one that thinks very differently than many VC investors. And that's been really helpful for me. What would you most like to change about the fundraising process? I think it's impossible, but if there was a way to really make it a blind auction, <laughs> it would be better for the entrepreneur where VCs inevitably all talk to each other. And it's difficult to keep things close, but ways that you can really create a blind process 
process and force conviction so that it's not investors following each other. I don't know what you mean. I don't think investors follow each other at all, right? (laughs) Tell me, what moment in your life has maybe served as like a transition point and changed the way that you think? So during college one summer, I lived in rural Kenya doing electronic medical records. And it really just gave me a lot of perspective and helped teach me what's important. Final one. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started True Work? Recruiting only gets harder. Hire more recruiters as early as possible. Ryan, as I said, I had so many great things from many different people before the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I can't wait to see the times ahead skating True Work. Thank you so much, Harry. Great chatting. Really some very exciting times ahead for Ryan and True Work. Such an open and nascent market for them to go after. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, let me state the obvious. Video consumption has skyrocketed over the last six months. And more than ever, developers need to be able to quickly build rock-solid video into their applications. And Mux is an API-first platform that makes building online video experiences easy. What Stripe does for payments, Mux does for video. Mux handles storage, encoding, and delivery, so your development team can focus on building product. Live streaming is just as easy, and Mux will scale with you as you grow, whether you're serving a few dozen streams or a few million. Designed by video experts and trusted by companies like SoulCycle, Robinhood, Visco, and Hopin, to name a few, your video will work perfectly on every device every time. Sign up for a free account and get $20 credit at Mux.com. And every great product needs great marketing, and you have to check out the book, No Forms, No Spam, No Cold Calls. It's a wake-up call for modern marketers and sellers. It's a guide to ditching traditional strategies that are no longer working and focusing on customer experience to drive revenue growth. This book is more than lofty theoretical ideas. It delivers proven B2B strategies, tactics, and plans that are ready to be adapted, customized, and tested by marketing and sales leaders. It provides a step-by-step guide to move your revenue teams away from an MQL-focused approach and align them around an ABM model that fundamentally puts prospects first. Check out more at sixcents.com forward slash saster that's six the number sense.com forward slash saster and last but by no means least there is always competition and hrefs makes competitive analysis easy their tools show you how your competitors are getting traffic from google and why you can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic find out the exact keywords they're ranking for and which backlinks are helping them most from there you can replicate or improve on their strategies if you're not getting significant search traffic hrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on, you can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you are getting search traffic, use features like their top pages report to break down which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate their success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs.com to sign up. That's ahrefs.com to sign up. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode with Octa CMO Ryan.